Hi guys, it's me, Ty Pool, and I'm back, and I have way more questions. Things like, what are animals saying to each other? Why is space so dark? What's the science behind bullying? This season, I'm willing to go where no 7th grader has ever gone before to find you the answers. Ty asks why. Rest your eyes and prepare your ears for all new episodes of Ty Asks Why. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Trana Winter. And I'm Thomas LeBlanc. Welcome Welcome to to Chosen Chosen Family. Family. Every second week we talk about art, sexuality, and identity with a special guest. Usually queer, but not always. I completely struggled coming out to my parents as a comedian. Being in the entertainment industry for Middle Eastern people is unheard of. Affecting change requires people to shake it up. Listen to Chosen Family wherever you get your podcasts. What sign are you, by the way? I'm an Aries. Of course. I love it. (laughs) I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Welcome to the best of white coat black art in the summer. This program first aired last December. This week, aside you almost never get to hear. I think what is happening is an opening. The tiny crack has finally made its way through me. The crack that I was terrified would take me down. But instead it's done something different. It's allowed in more light. It's peeled away the dark shades and has given me sight. Amy Willens is a writer of poetry and prose in her 40s. Amy also has schizoaffective disorder, a mental health condition that causes her to have delusions and hallucinations like schizophrenia, but combined with depression. A few months ago, I read her first-person account in the Globe and Mail with a provocative title, I'm not crazy. I'm not dangerous. I just need your understanding. I was floored by her candor. How many years I have waited to be held again, just to feel the sensation. How very blessed I now am. By coincidence, Amy wrote us an email after the piece ran, and I found out there's much more to her story. A downward spiral that began at age 22 took her from nursing student and champion precision skater to involuntary psychiatric patient. She spent much of her 20s and early 30s in mental health facilities in Alberta and Ontario. Once when I was overcome with agony, a nurse held my head in her hands and promised me that there will always be light. She softly said, the darkness eventually gives way to the hush of the divine. You just have to look to the sky, she whispered and pointed out the window. Just look how determined those stars are, so far from us, yet so bright. When she isn't writing, Amy works inside the system in Alberta to make things better for patients with mental health conditions. Today, we're going to tell you how Amy found her way back into the light of the outside world and how she pays it forward by helping others who are still struggling in the darkness of mental illness. As a doctor who has, at times, found it difficult to get past my own stereotypes of psychiatric patients, I found Amy's perspective an eye-opener. 
Her story just might be required listening for anyone who works or spends time inside a modern psychiatric hospital. Amy Willens, welcome to White Coat Black Art. Thank you for having me. You were in university training to be a nurse. Um, you were doing something called precision skating? Yes. Dating the quarterback of the varsity football team? Yes. You, were, you had quite a life at that time. You know, I had a whole life planned. I had a whole life planned. And I was so excited. And then it changed. What happened? We had just got onto the Canadian team, so I was going to be traveling and competing and representing my country, which was so exciting. Um, so I was training. I was going to school full-time. I had a part-time job. But I was under so much pressure. And I wasn't sleeping because I didn't have time. You know, this was what you did in my family. You were driven. You worked hard. You succeeded. So I just kept pushing myself. And the thing about depression is that it can be so insidious. And so it started with like this intense lack of interest in things. And I remember sitting on my couch and I was looking at the front door and I was thinking, I have to get up and out the door to practice. But it just took everything I had to just wipe my hair from my face. You know, it it yelled in my ear that I was nothing, that I was no one. I stopped eating. I stopped showering. I felt guilty, worthless. And at the same time, I began to believe that I was being watched and followed. So I would do things like drive in circles, afraid to stop because I thought the cars behind me were coming to get me. I started to have these delusions that I was pregnant when I wasn't. I also did things like uh, phone the police over and over and over to report that my house was being watched and that my mail was being stolen. I was so paranoid. Um, I lost all touch with reality and... I locked myself in my apartment, and um, I wouldn't leave. And my mom came, and she was so good. She just sort of gently coaxed me out and uh, took me to the hospital where I was admitted that night. And I stayed for, for quite some time, that first one, and I actually never skated again competitively. And very quickly, I lost everything in my life. How old were you? I was 22 years old. I was 22. And suddenly you become, suddenly you're a psychiatric patient. And, uh, you know, this is very different than being like sister and friend and athlete and student. You learn that that title comes with so much isolation. Um, like the friends I had, they came once or twice and then they stopped coming. Um, my coach never came once to see me. You know, I didn't receive, like, get well soon cards or pink balloons or anything like that, you know. There was just this this silence and this distance from people. I'm struck by you being in your 20s when, when all of this happened with your whole life ahead of you. Yeah. Looking back, what did it feel like to be you back then? It was so lonely. Um... You know, when I was in hospital, they keep you busy during the day and the evening is for visitors, you know. And in the evenings, I would just stand at the door waiting for somebody to come and visit me. And uh, nobody would come. And I'd wait and wait. And at the end of the night, the nurses would collect me and they'd, they'd help me to bed. Um, I felt an incredible, incredible amount of shame 
because of what was going on. Shame. Um, Yeah, so much shame. Well, I just felt like somehow I had caused this illness and that I was less of a person, that I didn't deserve kindness, that I didn't deserve to have friends. I believe my family thought I was a burden. I felt like I was in the middle of an ocean just just floating with n- with nothing, no beacon in sight. In addition to feeling lonely, there were times when you felt stigmatized. Oh, yeah. Even by the staff treating you. Yeah. Can you tell me about that? Sure. I'll tell you about the lowest moment. Is that that okay? Sure. Okay. Um, I found myself in hospital in Ontario, and... It's a long and complicated story how I ended up in Ontario. But I found myself on this unit, and it was a locked unit, three bedrooms, no doors to the bedrooms, and the nurses were behind glass. And there was another patient in there, a man. They had taken all the furniture away except a mattress on the floor. And all he did was um, scream and bang his fists against the wall. And I remember trying to calculate in my mind how long it would take the nurses to get through the two doors. It was the first and only time that I ever felt like my safety was in danger. This nurse came in and she had a student. She said to the student about me, she said, this one's a schizophrenic. And she began to read my um, intake notes. I remember just sitting there with my head down, feeling so incredibly humiliated by this experience, Mm. and that I wasn't a person. She came back because I was crying, and the reason I was crying is because they stopped all of my medications, like just cold turkey. I was having terrible, terrible uh, symptoms, paranoia, anxiety. I was having some withdrawal, and I was in tears. And she said, what are you crying about? And I said, can you please, please help me? Give me something. And she turned to the student nurse and she said, they're all drug seekers. They'll try anything. Just don't give in. I had never been a, Mm. I had never been a, I'd never abused medications in my life. And I just felt so demeaned. My family came and took me out of hospital there against against medical advice and they got me on a plane and they got me back to Edmonton and I got back into hospital here. And things were better after that? Oh, things were so much better. You know, I had a fantastic doctor. I had nurses. Their compassion and kindness was so uh, unbelievable. There was one nurse, Esther, who would always take me for ice cream. There was Chris who put rubbed cream on my feet. There was Sandy who let my dad stay after visiting hours. Um, I had a horrible time trying to sleep. And she would let my dad stay in my room with me until I fell asleep. Um, They were amazing people. And there was one nurse in particular who uh, kind of led you into a career as a writer. Yes, that was Mary. So my last hospitalization in 2001... It was early in the morning. I was standing looking out the front doors of the hospital, and I was looking out into it like it had just been snowing for days and days and days, and it was just like pure white. And something told me to write. 
I had never been a writer. But I listened to this voice and I started to write and I, I would find scraps of paper around the hospital and I'd write these little lines down and then I'd hide them because I didn't want anybody to see them. I want to see the sky. I want to hear my sister sing. I want to drink. I want to sleep. I want to stop asking you for forgiveness. But um, Mary figured out that I was doing this writing. And Mary herself was a published poet. She asked me if she could take my poems home and type them up. I need to know why my mother cries. Because right now I'm veiled in a shower of sadness. And it's my body that holds my memory. And she did that. She brought them back to me all typed up and she pinned them up on my bulletin board in my room. And she brought me paper and pens. She, she acknowledged me. And when I left the hospital that last time, Mary uh, led me to a writing instructor who held writing workshops for women. I was absolutely terrified, terrified to attend this class. I had spent five years in and out of the hospital. Mm. So I was on very shaky ground, you know. And I showed up for this writing class and I didn't know what to do. So I just looked around and I thought, okay, who are the, like the... Who are the softest looking people in the room? And I'll just, I'll just sit myself between them. It was this fantastic week of writing and my pen just moved the whole time. And there was a reading at the end of it. And I started watch these um, women get up to the mic and very confidently read their poems and share their stories. And I thought, oh my God, I, I can't do this. And so I kept shuffling further and further in the chairs until I was practically outside of the room because I didn't want to have to go. But I got up to the mic and I could not get my voice to come out of mm. my throat. And I was shaking, just quivering. And so this one woman came and stood to my left, and another one came and stood to my right, and they each just, like, gently put a hand on my shoulder. And it settled me. Mm. Hazy blue. And the thing was, is I was able to read a poem. You ask me about insanity. I'll tell you about the titter-tatter of the moon, the up-up-up of a sterile elevator, red so bloody it hurts to see it. And in that, reading that poem, I heard my voice. And uh, I hadn't heard my own voice in years. A mouthful of sour milk, the terror of fingerprints, the sky falling, I'll tell you. ID bracelets so when you're lost, they can find you. A door they sometimes open. That shame that I walked in there with was, was lifted a bit in that night. You know, those women, they stood and they clapped and they took me in. And um, it was one of the biggest gifts that I've ever been given. And, and I have Mary, Nurse Mary to thank for that. And what time is it? A cigarette, a cigarette, picking at your skin. And he's falling, pushing the piano over and the prayers and the call of the wild. And I don't know what time it is. Are you mad? I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. Questions and questions. And when will I go home? Burnt carpet, the sky, a hazy blue. You're listening to White Coat Black Art. This week, Amy Willens, the years she spent as an involuntary psychiatric patient, 
and the journey back. She credits a love of writing with helping her find the light in her life, that and a strong support network of friends and mentors. But she told me there was a time when she realized she also needed to start depending on herself. We jumped ahead because you were talking about writing and it was so important in your recovery. But I want to take you back because some things happened to you after you got out of hospital in 2001. So when I left the hospital, we had finally figured out a combination of meds that was working. It was like somebody had turned the lights on, you know. And in 2004, I started to work, and that felt great. Things were going good. I was gaining some confidence. And I was at work one day, and um, my mom phoned and said, can I pick you up? I got in the car, and she said, um, your doctor, he, he's gone. And, and I said, gone where? And she said, he died. And I said, what do you mean he died? I just saw him last week. And I said, how did he die? And she said, he died by suicide. And um, boy, was I shocked by that one. I remember being at the funeral, you know, surrounded by psychiatrists and, and mental health nurses and therapists, and all these people with all this knowledge about mental health. And this still happened. I was filled with so much grief and so much sadness for this loss. It was just so profound. And we were standing there in the church singing the hymns. And while we were singing the hymns, it just came to me. I just thought, I want to live, you know? I really want to live. And uh, I decided that I would stay alive and that I would try to build the life that I wanted. And I also came to realize in that moment that I have to learn how to take care of myself because ultimately I'm alone in this. I really got to work learning everything I could about my illness, learning everything I could about my medications. Working with a psychologist, I, I learned how to think about my thinking, how to live with my symptoms, because I, I, you know, I still have some paranoid thoughts and things like that that I still experience. And so I had to learn how to live with that and, and keep going. There are so many who are listening to you right now who are thinking, I can't, I can't go where, where, where Amy has gone. I don't know how to do it. You know, it's funny because I had a, the therapist who taught me or taught me to think my first thought is not always my best thought. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I often think that. It's like cognitive behavioral therapy. So I, I question things. Okay, if I think someone's watching the house, I'll think, okay, I'm sitting here watching TV with a cat. Why would somebody be interested in, in watching me? So I sort of try and think my way through the whole scenario. And when you do that, yeah. Does it, how long does it take to work? Oh, it works, it works really quickly. Over the years, it's taken time, you know, 17 years to get to this point. I'm constantly thinking about my thinking. And I'm constantly checking in with how I'm feeling, my sleep, with my routine. So it takes a lot of work to stay well. And you still have some other thoughts. Yeah, I do. The negative thoughts about myself, you know, this you're stupid, that was dumb thing to say, you know, these thoughts kind of haunt me too. But again, I say, okay, I'm not being kind to myself. It's, it's not a good thought. So, but I do a lot of meditation. That helps a lot. And you've learned how to share tips with other people who have similar thoughts. I got to be a peer support worker. Peer support work has been such a gift in my life. It feels really good to be able 
to walk beside somebody, to help them as they're, they go through these really difficult, scary, uh, lonely times keeps me well because I know I have to look after my wellness if I'm going to be any kind of help to anybody else. I'm told that you were one of the first peer support workers in Alberta. I was um, the first peer support worker in Alberta Health Services Mental Health and Addiction on a clinical team. 2012, uh, first one there. And uh, suddenly I find myself sitting in, in patient conference. The experience I had with patient conferences was it was always about me, right? And uh, it felt very... Um, I would say kind of uncomfortable the first couple times. What were you able to uh, contribute at, in those meetings that, that gave the staff insights that they wouldn't have had had you not been there? <clears throat> well, I was able to talk about a lot about stigma, about uh, what it feels like to be talked about as a patient. I tried to change the language, you know, so that when, you know, when they're talking about a patient, it's not a young woman, 43, schizophrenic. You know, there's so much more to a person than their illness. You know, we don't call somebody with cancer, we don't call them cancer, you know. So don't call somebody a schizophrenic. I really didn't like that. And I was able to, to add things about medication. I'm able to share some of the treatments that worked well for me. Earlier on, you talked about feeling shame over your illness, and it's 20 years later, we have campaigns like Bell Let's Talk. We make a point about trying to destigmatize mental illness, and you've been public about your, your illness now. Do you think the needle has moved? Do you think things have changed? I do think things have changed, and they have changed a lot since 1996, I have to say. When I first started being open about living with a mental illness, I didn't say it was schizoaffective disorder. I didn't disclose that. It was in the article that I wrote uh, for the Globe and Mail was the first time publicly that I loudly said, I have this illness. I'm glad that these campaigns are going on. Um, they're very helpful. Sometimes you don't see a person with schizophrenia included in, in some of the examples. Mm. There's a lot of stigma around uh, schizophrenia. That uh, article in the Globe and Mail, the, the headline on it, I'm not crazy, I'm not dangerous, I just need your understanding. And you started it with an anecdote about being on a flight. So I was, I was flying down to Arizona to, to stay with my mom. And I was sitting beside this man, and he started talking to me about gun controls, that there's a crazy on every corner and that you, we can't let the crazies get and gun, get them on a list and they have to be monitored. And, and I was just sitting beside him thinking, you have no idea who you're talking to, mm -hmm. you know? And that itself is, is such a stigma thing. You know, people have this image of what somebody with a mental illness looks like. And I thought, I have to pick my battles with this. And I thought, this is not the time because I'm trapped here for four hours beside this man to tell him what I really think. It was that um, experience that prompted the writing of the essay um, because there's so much misunderstanding. The media really plays into this, but violence is not a symptom of schizophrenia and related illnesses. But people often think that everybody with this il these illnesses acts out violently. What do you want most for people to understand about your diagnosis and about you as a person? That I did not cause this or choose it. Um, that it's a struggle for me. 
that I, let me see, what I don't want from people is pity. When I wrote the article, that wasn't my intention. Some people said, I, I'm so sorry, it must be so difficult what you live with. And I thought, I'm not looking for pity. I, I live a good life. I've built a good life. What I'm trying to do is to bring some awareness to make the path a little bit easier for the people coming behind me so that they're not so people aren't standing at that unit door waiting for somebody to come and visit them. One of those beliefs that people have about those with serious mental health disorders is that there's no getting better. What do you say to them? I say that recovery is possible for everybody. Everybody. It's, there's some things that you need. You need support. You need encouragement. You need purpose, meaning. You need proper housing. You know, you need those supports, but everybody can get well. And it's not always easy, and it's a long road, and sometimes it's two steps forward, one step back, you know. Um, it's it, re Recovery is not a straight line. Um, but every person I meet, I tell them that, that I work with as a peer support. Recovery is possible. You, There are amazing things that can happen in your life. We just have to work on what's, what's right ahead of us. Thank you very much for speaking with me. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. In 2015, the College and Association of Registered Nurses of Alberta, or CARNA, gave Amy a Partner in Health Award for helping bring peer support to clinical teams in that province. The Canadian Mental Health Association says stigma is a reality for many people with a mental illness and one of their greatest barriers to a complete and satisfying life. We've put some resources plus a selection of poems and photos from Amy on our website, cbc.ca whitecoat. If you'd like to comment on what you've heard today, we'd like to hear from you. Email us at whitecoat at cbc.ca. I'm on Twitter at NightShiftMD, and the show is at CBC Whitecoat. We're also on Facebook. White Coat Black Art was produced this week by senior producer Donna Dingwall, with help from Jeff Goods, Amina Zoffer, Sujata Berry, digital producer Ruby Buiza, and the rest of our digital team. That's medicine from my side of the gurney. I'm Brian Goldman. See you next week. How envious I am of the star's determination, when sometimes all I feel is fear, when sometimes I can't help but weep, when sometimes I just feel the grief so impossibly large and gaping, a wound I sometimes think I will never survive, but I did survive, I did. And I promise myself that I will always allow an alleyway a light, even if it leaves me open and vulnerable. I don't know what it is to be well. All I know is that I lived in two different worlds, so vastly different yet so tied to each other, because without one you cannot have the other. A world of pitch black numbness and a world of glorious radius light. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.